darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we again bless you and, and ask for your spirit, for your spirit's help to open our eyes, to open our hearts. Uh, Lord, certainly to enlighten our understanding, but oh Lord, do that deeper thing in us. Do that work in our hearts by which our hearts apprehend things and know things and see things, the things of which our minds speak. Lord, by your spirit, give us grace to marvel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Through the uh, last few weeks before um, and then including the Advent season, we have been looking at passages from the minor prophets to kind of prepare ourselves for the coming of the Messiah. And then last Sunday, and sort of especially on Christmas Eve, I encouraged us to think about Mary, to, to look at Mary and, uh, and contemplate Mary, because I think we get some important and really helpful instruction, if you will, and direction from Mary. Mary was a great puzzler. <laughs> Mary was a great ponderer. Uh, Mary was a great questioner. Um, you know, I suggested on Christmas Eve that by the grace of God, she was enabled to respond the way she did to Gabriel when Gabriel made his announcement to her that she would conceive this child in her womb who would be called holy because he would be holy, who would then be the son of David, who would sit upon a throne and remain on that throne forever and ever and ever. And, and she asked the question, how can this be? How can this be? Now, again, if you look at Gabriel's response to her, his response was, in effect, a commendation. She was not, 
She was not asking a question from a heart lacking in faith. She was asking a question from a heart filled with faith. She's the great questioner, the great ponderer. And Luke tells us in in Luke chapter 2 that when the shepherds came and made their announcement, you know, sort of made their report about the things that they had seen, Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. She kept questioning and pondering and meditating and reflecting. And that that idea shows up again at the end of Luke chapter 2 after Jesus, you remember this great story, after Jesus with his parents have gone to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and he's probably 12 or 13, he's probably gone up there to kind of make that transition from being a child to being an adult to begin assuming the responsibilities of adulthood. He's 12, 13 years old, touching his human nature. And they go to Jerusalem and they're headed back from Jerusalem, going back to Nazareth and Mary and Joseph. It's remarkable their sort of indignation at the, at the child Jesus when they return to Jerusalem. Mary and Joseph have left Jerusalem to head back, and they're with a whole bunch of folks, presumably, and suddenly they realize that Jesus is nowhere to be found. They've lost their child. So they turn around and make the day's journey back to Jerusalem, and there is Jesus in the temple quizzing and being quizzed by the experts in the law, the theologians, the scholars, quizzing and being quizzed by the experts. And the text tells us that they were amazed at his understanding. Amazed at his understanding. When his parents come back and find him, Mary says to him, your father and I have been so worried. What are you doing? I mean, who's the negligent person here? Come on. And Jesus responds to his parents and says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? I had to be about my father's business. And then the text says again that Mary treasured up these things. Treasured up these things and pondered them. Mary's the great ponderer. Now here's the problem with where we are, it seems to me, in this sort of Christmas season. The ornaments are coming down. The lights are coming down. The presents have been unwrapped. The stuff that doesn't fit is being taken back and exchanged. That whole thing. And the season is coming to a close and we're going to pass beyond it. We're going to move beyond it and get back into the normal and the routine and the ordinary. And folks, what I want to suggest to you by looking at Mary, is that once Jesus comes, nothing is ever the same again. Nothing is ever the same again. And by the grace of God, you know, if you're into the business of making New Year's resolutions, by the grace of God, make this resolution. Be a ponderer. Be a wonderer. Be a questioner. One who contemplates these things and meditates on these things and reflects on these things. That's what Mary did. And John, in in this, you wonder, I've already sort of given you the application. Now we'll go to the text, okay? 
talking here about Mary, but I'm trying to encourage you as you come to John chapter 1 in this passage that is so very familiar that you not read it and just pass over it, but that you really in the next days and weeks contemplate these things and marvel at these things. John is telling us, not in narrative form as Matthew does in his gospel or Luke does in his gospel, but in a kind of a theological declaration, John is telling us what happened when Mary conceived in her womb, then gave birth to God the Son, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David, the long-awaited King. John is making a theological declaration and is saying to us, the eternal Word became flesh and took up His dwelling among us. The eternal Word became flesh and took up His dwelling among us. Now, Let's think about this for just a little bit. Again, this is John in a theological declaration. There are no angels here. There's no visit of Magi. There are no cattle stalls. This is just him telling us what it is that happened at the incarnation. And the first thing, just to kind of camp on, and we're just going to look at the first couple of verses and then verse 14, but the first thing to camp on is the word word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, for a long time, commentators and theologians, and I, I just think this is important, okay? I'm, I mean, I'm, I depend on other people, okay? I depend on commentators and, and people who study these things and who are smarter than I am. They mine things, and I just try to accumulate the gems that they mine, you know what I mean? And, and then try myself better to understand the Scriptures so as to be able to help you better understand them. And then apply them, you know, contemplate them, work them through, work them into your hearts by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Here, here's, where, here's the point. For a long time... A lot of commentators and theologians have tried to argue that John was using an idea from Greek philosophy when he uses this word, word, the logos. They've tried to suggest that John was particularly interested in appealing to a Greek audience. The Greek culture had had spread widely across the whole Mediterranean basin and had touched everything. It had been doing that for over three centuries. And, and the argument is that John is trying to cater to that culture, that he's using a word that they would understand. At one level, he's trying to import some meaning, pack some meaning into it, um, but really seeking to cater to a Greek audience. Now, the Greeks heard this word logos, and what came to mind for them was the idea of reason. They looked at the world around them. I don't mean to bore you with this stuff. I just think it's important. They looked at the world around them, and they saw order. They saw interdependence. They saw beauty. They saw harmony. They saw diversity. But in the midst of all of that diversity, they saw purpose. And they asked themselves the question, what accounts for the unity and the order and the sense of purpose that there is in the universe? And they, they sort of came up through time with this idea of the logos, which is reason or logic or an ordering principle that accounts for the harmony, the order, the purposefulness that you find in the world around you. 
people have suggested that John picks up that term, takes that term, writing to a primarily Greek audience and wants to communicate to them the idea that there is a reason behind the order that exists in the universe. The problem is the Greeks saw it as a kind of a static and impersonal thing. And John is a Jew. John is deeply schooled, influenced by, shaped by, impact. I mean, it's in his sinew. It's, it's, it's woven into the fabric of his existence that there is something more that accounts for the order, the beauty, the sense of purpose in the universe than an abstract idea, a simple principle, an abstraction. See, when a Hebrew person who would have spoken the language of the day, which was common Greek. When a Jewish person heard this word, logos, it would have taken that Jewish person back to the Hebrew word, which the word logos translates. And that word, dabar, means speech or words or speaking in its verbal form. And always, and this is so important, this is so important, always, dabar, words or speech or speaking are always connected to a person. Not an abstraction, but a person. And so for John, when John uses this word, he's not thinking simply about an ordering principle. He's not thinking about an idea, something at the philosophical level that accounts for the order, the symmetry, the beauty, the sense of purpose that there is in the creation. He is thinking very specifically as a Jewish person about the someone, about the person who does the speaking, who uses the word. In the beginning was the word. John very intentionally is taking his readers, whether Jew or Gentile, back to Genesis 1, reminding them that behind everything that exists is the... I use this phrase all the time. I know you're going to get tired of hearing it from me. But I'm telling you, it is so important for our culture. So important in our day. When everybody is into spirituality... You know, there was a time when, not that long ago, when spirituality was debunked. We were so influenced by the Enlightenment, so influenced by rationalism, if you couldn't put it in a beaker, if you couldn't measure it on a scale, it didn't exist. We're at a different place now. And people do believe that there are unseen things around. There is a spiritual realm. But talk to people. It's highly impersonal. It's highly unpredictable. You can't talk about it. You can't even argue, debate. You can't interact with it because it's so intensely personal and so utterly incommunicable. You can't have conversation. You can't talk to somebody and say, well, I don't think you're right, or I think you maybe. You can't do that. In this culture, in this time, it is so critically important for me as a Christian, for you as a Christian, to understand as you read John 1, that John is taking us back to Genesis 1-1 and connecting us 
to the infinite personal God who is really there, who speaks. See, the idea of word isn't just an organizing principle. It's something that has power. Look at all of the instances in Genesis 1 where God speaks and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. And here's the thing to notice in Genesis 1. Every time God speaks, it comes to pass. No word of his ever fails. No word of his is ever untrue. No word of his is ever without power. In the beginning was the word. John is taking us back to this infinite personal God who is really there. I, I you know, sort of joked with you on Christmas Eve, those of you who were here, joked with you about uh, Bill Cosby and this, this, some of you don't know what long playing albums are in this, but there was a time when long playing albums were things you put on phonograph records and then you put a needle on it and the thing would spin around at 33 and a third RPMs, revolutions per minute, and then stuff would come out of speakers. And, and Bill Cosby made this record. And he's on the front of this, you know. And the title of the album was, is, was a question, why is there air? Which I suggested on Christmas Eve is a really important question to be asking yourselves. Now, the Greeks understood that something existed. And they looked to the logos as the thing to explain the diversity and unity, the sense of intricacy and interdependence and purposefulness, but they could never come to terms with the why question. They talked a lot about the what. What is there and what explains what is there? But it is the Hebrew mind, it is the biblical mind that gives an answer to the why question. Why does something exist at all? And the answer is the infinite personal God who thinks, who acts, who speaks, who creates, and who, when he speaks, always accomplishes what his words intend. The word is being connected to that God. Now, the second thing that obviously comes out of this in this particular passage is that the word, this dynamic powerful word is itself personalized. Okay? The word is personal. In the beginning was the word, and then you look at verse 2, and there's a personal pronoun there. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He, personal pronoun, he was in the beginning with God. So what do you have there? Well, here's what you have. You have a little bit of a window into the mystery of the multiplicity of persons in the Godhead. He, a distinct person from God. A personal pronoun suggesting that this word is personal. And then you have this little preposition that's translated with in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And again, trust me on this. Don't trust me if you don't want to. You can look at the commentaries yourselves. You read the commentators, and the commentators will tell you that that little preposition translated with suggests 
intimate, personal, face-to-face communion and fellowship. So you have God and you have the Word who is personalized standing in intimate, personal, relational communion with each other. And that gives us a little bit of a window into other passages in the New Testament where this idea that the Word is with God is distinct from God, but is in face-to-face, intimate, personal communion with God, what that all looks like. Think, for example, of what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. John alludes to this, In verse 18, no one has ever seen God. Why is that? Because God is invisible to the eye. I love to tell stories about my kids. My youngest daughter was memorizing the little children's catechism when she was six or seven years old. And she was talking with Barb, my wife, one time, and she said, Mom, what does God look like? And she was going to ask, what does God look like? And then she remembered the little catechism question. God is a spirit and hath not a body like man. And so she answered her own question and said, oh, yeah, God is a spirit and hath not a body like man. Invisible, unseen, the invisible God. Well, you see, the word in face-to-face, intimate, personal fellowship and communion with God, the personal word is the image, is the evidence, is the manifestation of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the perfect replication of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews talks about it this way. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers at many times and in many ways. But in these last days, you know how I could go off on that one. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. Sounds a lot like John 1. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The exact representation of his being. Begin to get a feel for what John is after here, what John is arguing for. It is the idea that the Son mirrors the very nature of God. The word mirrors the being, the character the glory, the refulgent splendor of the infinite personal God who is really there. That's what that little word with means as you work your way through the rest of the New Testament and its understanding of the person of Jesus. The one who is unseen is seen in the image, the perfect and exact representation of of his being, the one who manifests his glory. Someone has, it's kind of an interesting little quotation, someone has referred to the Christ-likeness of God. 
we tend to think of the God-likeness of Christ, but this person, Elton Trueblood, describes the Christ-likeness of God that the Son bears, the image of the Father, the exact representation of His being. Another story, okay? I think you may have heard this story if you've been here for a couple of years or so. It's, it's the story of my oldest daughter's birth. This, this is, I'm telling you, this is a window, for me at least, into what John is getting at here. Small little portal through which to see what it is that John is getting at. When my oldest daughter was born, I was in the delivery room, as some of you fathers were. I didn't pass out. I kept my feet, kept my head, helped my wife. And when my oldest daughter was born, the doctor who delivered my daughter toweled her off just a bit, wrapped her up, and handed her to me. And that moment, when he handed my daughter to me, was one of the most sublime, transcendent experiences of my life, ever. Because, and it's like time stood still. It was, it was a moment frozen in time. And the reason is, as I held that little child in my arms and looked into her face, I had to do a double take because I saw the face of my sister. I saw a family likeness in my daughter's face, and I was confused, and my my sister's name is Kathy. My oldest daughter's name is Katie. I mean, we, we'd know what we were going to name her before she was born, if she was a girl. So here I am looking at Katie, but I'm seeing the face of Kathy. And the whole thing just, it, it, I'm transfixed and I can't figure out what's happening. Because what I saw in the face of my child was the family likeness. The family likeness. Now here's the cool thing. How much pleasure did I take in that? incalculable, incalculable pleasure. There's no way to measure the sense of delight and pleasure that I took as I looked at the face of my child, not in a narcissistic way, just looking at the face of my child and saw in that face the family likeness. This tells you something about the nature of the relationship between the father and the son. You know those occasions in the Gospels and if I've mentioned this to you before, forgive me. But you know those instances in the Gospels where the Gospels will record the words of the Father, where the Father will say, this is my beloved Son in whom I delight, in whom is my pleasure. Here's, here's what you have going on there. You have the infinite and eternal God. I don't know if you think about God in this way. If you don't, be a Mary and ponder and contemplate this. The infinite and eternal God who has an infinite capacity both for identifying and delighting in beauty and loveliness and what is delightful. The infinite eternal God has an infinite capacity for identifying and finding joy in the object of his delight. And what he finds in the Son, 
who is the exact representation of his being, is an object worthy of his infinite capacity for identifying and delighting in beauty and loveliness and goodness and truthfulness. And so when the Father looks upon the Son and the heavens are opened up and the Father speaks from the heavens, he's not only saying, this is my Son, I like what he does, but this is my Son in whom is all my delight, in whom I find an object to satisfy my infinite capacity for beauty, for loveliness, for goodness, for truthfulness, an object that elicits from me an infinite and eternal joy. The Father and the Son, God and the Word, in infinite personal communion with one another, delighting in one another, finding in one another an object of beauty and loveliness to satisfy their deepest longings. And so the Word who is in the beginning, is also with God. The word who is in the beginning and who is with God, face to face with God. The word who is the one through whom, verse 3, all things were made, all things were created, is in fact God. He is God. The second person of the Trinity And it is that God, infinite and eternal, eternally dwelling in the presence of his Father, it is that infinite and eternal personal word who was with God, who is the object of the Father's love and delight and pleasure and joy. It was that word who became flesh and has taken up his dwelling among us. If you read the old King James, I think in some of the old, older translations, the word dwelt is translated tabernacled. He tabernacled among us, which stirs up all of that imagery of the tent and the holy of holies surrounded by the holy place and all the curtains and all the priests and all the sacrifices and everything. But you know what the central feature of that is? The central and key thing is that the God of heaven and earth made a tent for himself so that he could be in the midst of his people, be with his people. And who is it? It is the infinite, eternal, unchanging God of unspeakable beauty and glory who takes flesh to himself, wraps himself in a tent so that he might be in the midst of his people so that he might dwell with his people, so that he might be Emmanuel, God with us. In all of the glory of his Father. Now, I really want to encourage you to think about that as you head into this week. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what awaits you tomorrow. I don't I just want to be realistic, folks, with you about these things. This is not a fireside chat. This is not 
This is not one guy just kind of spinning stuff out of his head and talking about stuff. This is somebody who's going to leave this place and he's going to go to the hospital to be with his dying father. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not being maudlin. I'm not being morose. I'm not being melodramatic, folks. I don't know what awaits me when I get there. You don't know what awaits you tomorrow. I don't know what's going on in your lives right now. Here is what I know. That the infinite, eternal, personal God, full of glory and wonder and power, who speaks and whose words never fail, took flesh to himself so that he would be God with you. Emmanuel, God with you. As you walk out of this place and into the rest of your life. If you are a Christian today, if you are one of those spoken of in John chapter 1, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, if you're one of those today, one who has received him, who has believed in his name, not with your brain, though your brain is involved. I don't discount the brain. You know, I know you know this. You know, the Bible says the demons believe and shudder. Okay? It's one thing to believe with your thinker. It's another thing to believe as Mary did, treasuring up these things, pondering them in her heart, believing the way I suggested Pascal believed. Reason is one thing, but the heart has reasons that reason knows not of. It is one thing to think to believe with your believer, with your thinker, but it is another thing entirely. To receive Jesus, to entrust yourself to him, to believe in him, the eternal word of God, face to face with the Father, who takes flesh to himself so that he, glorified at the right hand of the Father, might be with you by his spirit. As you go from this place, into the rest of your life, not knowing what awaits you. That world is too darn scary for me to go into alone. It is too uncertain, my friends. And this idea of the incarnation and all of this elaborate stuff that I'm sharing about God being face-to-face with the Word, all of that is to move down a funnel to this pinpoint of the incarnation where the eternal word of God does what I've said, takes flesh to himself, dwells among us, is Emmanuel, so that as you move out into the rest of your life, you may move into the rest of your life knowing that that God is with you and will never leave you or forsake you. It's it's what enables Mary to stand before Gabriel and from the bottom of her heart to the best of her ability by the grace of God, say to Gabriel, be it done to me according to your will. Because as she moved into the rest of her life, Mary the ponderer, Mary the questioner, 
moved into the rest of her life knowing, this is so weird, that Emmanuel was with her, not just in her belly as a baby, but as the Lord of glory, ruling and reigning and sovereign over all things. Now, you probably wonder where the sermon title came from. Well, the world's first missionary left the glories of heaven and took flesh to himself so that he could be God with you forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please help us to be ponderers in the way that Mary was. And help us to know as we move from this place, block walls, tile floor, folding chairs, sharks hanging from the ceilings, as we go from this place out into the rest of our lives, may we know that you, Emmanuel, are God with us, that we may trust you and never fear because you will never leave us or forsake us. Lord Jesus, be with us, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's uh, join the angels and sing number 218.